like that one show when I was in uh, when I played the bishop one one time I have learned is sort of like a collector's item for Les Mis fans because like <laughs> there are very few events that were actually one-offs in Les Mis history because it ran for so long mm-hmm. that was one hello fellow theater geeks on this episode I'm talking to actor and singer Andrew Kober who was part of the cast of the 2014 Broadway revival of Les Miserables Andrew's resume is beyond impressive, and he's been seen on Broadway in the Tony-winning revival of Hair, She Loves Me, Sunday in the Park with George, School of Rock, and Beautiful. He's also performed in the West End, in regional theaters all over the United States, and on numerous television shows. Seriously, he's the real deal. There was so much to talk to Andrew about, like his bromance with Ramin, what the cast got up to backstage, and what he's learned about himself as an actor during the pandemic. Here we go. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me on the Beyond the Barricade podcast. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So thrilled to have you. First of all, you just had a birthday last week. So happy belated birthday. Thank you. It's uh, my age is progressing much more slowly than it feels like. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, thanks. It was it was really nice. I did exactly what I would have done even in a regular year, which is just stay home with my family. It was really oh, nice. Amazing. So before we just jump into the conversation, could you tell the listeners which production of Les Mis you were in and the part or parts that you played? Yeah. So I was in the most recent revival, uh, which I guess was the, what was that, 2013, I think? Uh, 14. 14. I think. 14. Yeah. Great. Thank you for knowing that. <laughs> no um, the one with the projections and with Ramin. Mm-hmm. I was in that one. Um, I played, I always, whenever I meet somebody who's like, and they're like, oh, you're an actor. What did you, what have you been in? It's always the next question. And I always lead with Les Mis because it's always the one that most people have heard of. And then they say, and who did you play? And I always say various sad French people. That's always my answer. I played various sad French people. Um, specifically for Les Mis fans, I was Babet and, uh, oh, I should remember more of their names. I mean, I was like all of them. I was all mm-hmm, of them. Right. I was Babet and I had a, one of my other guys had a name. Um, and I also covered Bam which I played several times. I played the, um, Bishop at one crazy performance. Uh, and so, you know, lots and lots of sad French people is who I played. <laughs> I mean, that's a good description for anyone who's ever been in Les Mis. They play yeah. lots of sad French people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm so excited to talk to you because your resume is just epic and you've worked on so many amazing projects. Um, I can't wait to dive into your story. Oh, but boy. I'd like to start with a 15-second interview, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. You know, Instagram blew up that format when they made them long. I was so sad. Oh, wow. Okay, what a thrill. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to do as well as you did, but we're going to give it a try. Well, the key is just abject aggressiveness. <laughs> I'm not great at that, so I'm, I'm going to be as aggressive as possible, but I'm probably still going to sound a little bit like a church mouse, and we're just going to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready for it. Team Valjean or Team Javert? Valjean. Dressing room must have. Oh, uh, headphones. Favorite Les Mis song? Ooh, um, empty chairs and empty tables. Go-to warm-up? Uh, none. <laughs> <laughs> Most underrated Lamez character. Oh, um, Kufarak. Uh, Lamez with an S or with a Z? I do a Z. I, I honestly am not timing, so I don't know if that was 15 no, seconds. No, say it was. Again, we're gonna there, go with we had a meeting at some point where someone important, I don't remember who, was like, listen, for this production, they were probably British. They were almost always British. I said, listen, for this production, it's Lamez with a Z. And we're like, okay, <laughs> great. So that was sort of ingrained into me that like ours was Lamez with a Z. Okay. Yeah, I'm always, it's fascinating. People are kind of passionate about which way they go with that. Yeah, no kidding. People have strong feelings about all kinds of stuff, it turns out. <laughs> Before we talk about your time in Lamez, I'd just love to hear your story of kind of how you got to be the theater industry mainstay that you are. Whoa. Well, I um, I joined the drama club in middle school because my girlfriend at the time felt that we were not spending enough time together. So she said that I should join her club, which was the drama club, and I got a better part than her, and she broke up with me. Oh, no. uh, but but I stuck with it, and it worked out great. So I uh, I you know I went to college for it. I, I got an acting major. I, I tried really hard to get accepted to a musical theater program, but I am not a dancer at all. And so no musical theater program wanted me, but I got into uh, some acting programs. I did an acting program. I kept up singing on the side. And turns out for shows like Les Mis, for example, you don't really need to be a dancer. Right. Um, 
the only dance number in that show is the waltz and i was the waiter so it didn't matter <laughs> for me uh so uh yeah i mean it's really just like a lot of patience and good luck is what i attribute my uh my string of good luck to is like i you know les mis was my second broadway show it came after a drought like after a scary drought and so um it was sort of very affirming for me when it came along and uh i've been lucky to be working pretty steadily since did you ever see the original or the second revival on broadway was it kind of a show that was always one of those like dream shows absolutely it was um i i never i think i never saw it on broadway but i did see the national tour when i was a kid uh it came through cleveland ohio where i grew up and we got fr- i'll never forget we got front row tickets on the side so we were in the front row all the way house left stage right and that was great and i was thrilled and i loved it i was already into kind of theater i was probably in high school or late middle school and at intermission i was with my mom and we were like chatting and i was looking through the program i loved reading the program i still do and as you know and your listeners will know act two starts with bum bum and it's huge and it turns out that i was maybe five feet away from the timpani player in the orchestra and that bum bum practically knocked me down onto the ground (laughs) and while i loved the show and had a great time like that for whatever reason is the most lasting memory of the first time i saw it is that loud like terrifying timpani coming out of the clear blue sky to practically knock me over when i was uh young and seeing the show for the first time but i auditioned for that i think i auditioned for the first revival and didn't book it but i have a bunch of friends that did and i was so jealous of them because like Les Mis is so iconic. It's like, you know, if you're going to be in a Broadway show, it should probably be Les Mis. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, it's it's the Broadway show. Right. Um, so I was so envious of my friends that got to be in that show. But I, I was so I was really, really thrilled when it came around for me again a few years later. Amazing. And do you remember what that you know, first night was like that, you know, you guys opened and you were in it? Oh, I mean, it's so thrilling, isn't it? Like, we, it's Les Mis at the Imperial Theater. It's like... Where, you know, obviously the show had run in its initial incarnation. And it's such a, I, I think I did, it's hard to count, but I, I did 700 or so performances of that show. I did a lot of Les Mises, not as many as some people have done. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, that first night, that opening night, it's so epic and it's so exciting. And in in the very opening of the show and look down, I was the, um, like, guard on the ship and so i i was dead center stage with drumsticks and i was banging on these drums um while everyone is rowing and doing look down and so i was the only one they were all facing upstage i was the only one standing dead center stage looking flat out at the audience as the curtain rose on opening night and it was so exciting it was so exciting to feel the energy of the audience who were so excited to see a new production of les mis And, and you know it's there's really nothing more kind of epic and exciting than the opening of that show or the entire show for that matter yeah i mean those when those official like first chords start playing whenever i see it it's just like that's like theater it's like the definition yeah (laughs) it's amazing Um, and you actually had a special family connection to the imperial wow yes that's true my uh great uncle my father's uncle was a playwright and a book writer for broadway shows and a show that he wrote, his most successful musical was called Wish You Were Here, which not a lot of people know, but it did run at the Imperial. And in the Imperial, um, there's, you know, it's like any of the old Broadway theaters, and it's like a warren of, it's a labyrinth of stairs and hallways and whatever. But there's a staircase that goes right from the stage door downstairs to where we had what was called Wardrobe Village, um, which is where we spent most of the show. And in that stairway were a lot of historic playbills from shows that have run there. And there, right there was a big uh, playbill for Wish You Were Here. And I, I got to pass by it every single day. And it was a... Uh, Kind of a cool family connection. I mean, my great uncle died well before I was born, and I didn't have anyone in my family who was involved in the arts. I didn't even know about him until I was probably in college. But it was so cool knowing that like another Cobra has been here and has worked here and has uh, has done his very best to make a, an entertaining night. Yeah, that's awesome. So being in the company, particularly the ensemble of Les Mis, seems to be incredibly challenging because everyone's <laughs> playing so many different parts and. How does it's that so compare hard. to other shows you've been in? Is it as hard as it looks? Yeah, it's harder than it looks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, to be honest, it, so the hard part of being the ensemble of Les Mis is not so much like the stuff you do while you're on stage. It's all the other stuff. There's so much 
else that goes into it. Because if you were just to take Les Mis and look at the characters in it, it's a cast of hundreds. And it's it's really only done with like a couple of dozen people. And so that couple of dozen people has an incredible responsibility to kind of breathe life into hundreds of characters. And so, you know, you get on stage and you do whatever that little bit is. You, you, for me, usually I was on stage for a minute or two at a time. Um, you know, some of the longer numbers obviously would be longer, but like you're popping in, you're popping out. I, I like, for example, in the in the barricade, in the big fight in the barricade, I died twice as two different characters. <laughs> yeah, I would be on the barricades fighting. I'm a student. I'm fighting. I'm fighting. Then I'd run away, quick change into a soldier, run up into the box, fire on Ajaras, miss, get shot and killed. <laughs> run back downstairs, change back into a student, rejoin the fight on the barricade, and then get shot and killed again. It was wild. And so it's like not the stuff that is on stage. It's the running around backstage and the changing of costumes and the grabbing of of props and like the getting from one part of the theater to another. It's that stuff that's so, so challenging. And our production of Les Mis was even a little shorter. I think we were like 20 minutes shorter than other productions have been. We managed to get it a little bit tighter. Um, <laughs> that just means those quick changes are quicker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I counted. I, I had 26 quick changes. Wow. Um, and it was that, – that really is the hard part. Because Also because like the stuff that you do on stage, even if it's quick – at least kind of fills you up a little bit emotionally. You're kind of doing the thing that you do. Whereas it's the, it's the running and the changing clothes. You're like, this is not what I've signed up for. This is just, <laughs> it's the work you have to do to get to do the work you want to do. The work you want to do is great. It's all the other stuff that's like, that can be really, really uh, taxing after, mm-hmm. you know, weeks or months or years of doing it. Yeah. And all those characters, like you just mentioned, do you, they all kind of have backstories? I know some of them are actually characters. Like you, you mentioned yeah. Rick is one of the barricade yeah. boys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We did actually a lot of work in rehearsal um, with breathing life into those kind of big groups. Like especially the group of students. Like groups like that, we put a lot of time and care into what are these relationships? So it's not just like a mass of sad French people. Like what what are... <laughs> Who are they? What do they want? We spent a lot of time and a lot of care on kind of populating this world. And stuff like the group of students or stuff like um, the docs, for example, like every one of those relationships was really specifically textured. You know, like the if you were to come and watch it eight times in a week, you would see like you know, oh, okay, so that guy has a different relationship with her than he does with him. And oh, does she work with her? Like there, there's there's a lot of kind of uh, ingrained history that we worked to build uh, that was really specific and really um, sort of made its way into the fabric of our show to the point that when actors would leave or when understudies would go on, like that stuff is a part of the Bible of the show. Like Mm -hmm. that stuff is built in, especially in some of those kind of bigger group scenes. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm obsessed with the ensemble because I've, I've seen it so many times that I often find myself watching the ensemble instead of the main action because Those there's the so tracks. many interesting things happening. Those are the tracks. And also, like, we, I, you know, I never did the math, but I think other than maybe Valjean, I think almost the entire ensemble is on stage more than anyone else in that show. Right, yeah. Um, certainly more than, like, Javert or Marius or Angeras. And, you know, a, a lot of Limes fans know that, like, Eponine's in the ensemble, too. Fontaine's right. in the ensemble, too. Like, Marius, everybody's in the ensemble, I think, except for Valjean and Javert, mm-hmm. historically. Um, so, like, you know, Casey Levy, who was our Fontaine, did the whole first act as Fontaine. And then if you look carefully in the second act, she was peeling potatoes at the barricade <laughs> wearing a different wig. Like, that stuff is so fun to kind of track if you're really watching carefully. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes the show, like, this kind of really cool community. Like, it seems like people who are in the show together really kind of form this bond that you don't see a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's besides the fact that it's such, um, there's such a huge group of people that have done it, it really is a a really specific kind of a job. Like, it, beyond the, the technical aspect of whatever 26 costume changes or whatever you have to do, it is kind of grueling emotionally, right? Like it, it's a, it's, I, I'm not a very like schmactery schmactery actor. I try not to be at least, but like spending three hours in that place eight times a week in like the place of telling that story and kind of trying to get an audience to go with you to that place does take a little bit of a toll. Like it costs something. 
And um, I think that anyone who's been in the position of the, the really fortunate position of telling that story uh, would sympathize with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have to ask about Coberlu, your <laughs> epic romance with Ravine. <laughs> How did that romance come to be? <laughs> How did that come to be? I'm not sure. How did that come to be? Ramin, I love Ramin. Ramin is a brother to me. And um, he, we didn't know each other before the show. We became fast friends. I think he sort of, Ramin, <laughs> Ramin, Ramin <laughs> is, is a very big star in the UK and a very big star in Canada. And I think this was his first kind of like break into the US thing. And he didn't, really know his way around he didn't know what was what and and i i sort of uh befriended him and we became really fast friends we just got along really well he still doesn't know what's what to be honest (laughs) um but we got to know each other really quickly and we had a good time and when broadway.com asked him to do a vlog for their website i think he was worried i hope he listens to this i think he was worried that he wasn't going to be funny enough by himself or interesting enough so it was like mate i can't do his accent because it's made up he was like mate do you want to do this vlog with me and like we can just kind of talk or whatever i said sure and uh so i think that was kind of the birth of it like we kept on doing the vlog and then i think brother.com stopped making the vlog because it was done but he was like, well, we can still, you know, make videos or whatever. So we kept <laughs> making videos. And sometimes we made them with Will. And uh, that was sort of that. I mean, we became really good friends. And we're, we still talk a lot. And, you know, we're, we're still close buddies. Also, like, he, my wife became uh, pregnant with our son during Les Mis. And Ramin had two boys. And so it was nice to me to have, like, someone who had kind of already been down that road to be able to talk to about that. You know, helping him. I was his date to like a lot of Tony parties and stuff, (laughs) like all the whole award season stuff. Me and Ramin, I would like be his little buddy to the because like, you know, I knew a few more people than he did. I just been in town longer and uh, we just had a great time. We had a great time together. And uh, yeah, he's he's a very sweet and good man. What are some of your favorite Cobra Lou memories? Oh, boy. You know, we so Ramin is game for just about anything he's like a really just a a really fun kind of grab life by the horns kind of guy and so when we i was the coach of our softball team for the broadway softball league which is something that i'm very passionate about and is i think at this point at least 30 or 40 percent of the reason that i continue to work in the (laughs) musical theater is the broadway softball league but i was our so i was the coach for team lame is and um i put up a sign up and he came and he asked me he was like so what's the deal with this i said well we play softball he said well i want to be on the team I said, okay, do you know anything? He said, no, I don't know the rules. <laughs> I don't know the positions. I don't know anything about it, but I want in. I said, okay, great. And he signed up and he came to a few games. Uh, you know, he, Valjean, as I'm sure you're aware, is a challenging role. And mm-hmm. so he like, you know, it does require a lot of kind of discipline outside of doing the show every night. And Ramin is a really disciplined performer who takes his job really seriously. But a few times he came to the games. Had absolutely no idea what he was doing, but he does have, like, a really kind of natural, raw athletic ability. So he, like, quickly understood he's going to throw the ball over here and I want to hit it as far as I can. And he would he could do that really naturally, really easily. But then running the bases, he had absolutely no understanding of. Like, when <laughs> it was time to go where, like, which direction you should go, when to stop, when to go, no idea. But he really was good at hitting the ball really far. And then we got to go to – he and I were asked to be a part of the Broadway Show League All-Star Game at Yankee Stadium. Oh, <laughs> so, <wow. laughs> like, we got to go play softball at Yankee Stadium, this sport that, like, I'm pretty sure he had not heard of three months earlier. <laughs> um, and now he's an all-star. <laughs> and now he's an all-star. And, uh, yeah, we had a great time. We rode the subway out there with James Snyder from uh, – he was doing If Then Now, but then, but now he's Harry Potter. And um, we just had, like, a great – time he's he's a great we had a lot of goofy fun times together we've made a lot of podcast episodes that never saw the light of day he's tried to start like four or five podcasts that just like for whatever reason never worked out they must be on a hard drive somewhere but like we we kept on meeting up and doing episodes of podcasts until one actually got released i I listened to that one it was pretty fun right yeah it was fun (laughs) you guys have such a good rapport it's awesome (laughs) he's a he's a really good guy and we you know he's one of those friends where like we don't talk every day or every week, but when we talk, you just slide right back in like mm-hmm. uh, no time has passed. Yeah. Uh, and now he's on – he's like – he's basically the British George Clooney now. He's like on some big medical drama 
yes. over there, and I, I refuse to learn the name of it. But he seems he's very very happy. Like he likes he he's really happy because he gets to like be at home close to his family, mm-hmm. uh, and not flying all over the world all the time, which he loves. But it's, I think he's happy for to kind of be closer to home for a little bit, which I totally understand. Yeah, that's nice. Um, your company in general just seem to have a lot of fun together. Um, yeah, this is my favorite story from Les Mis, and it's about Chris McCarroll. Chris McCarroll, <laughs> when we he when we were in tech and in previews during the big big barricade fight, sound kept on coming back to stage management and be like, "There's a weird something's happening and we don't know what it is. Like, there's a weird sound that's coming through. We're not sure what's happening. We, we can't figure it out." And so, like for a long time, they were trying to figure out, like, "What's the sound? What's the sound during the big fight that is coming through on someone's mic?" We didn't know. And what it turned out it was was. During the big fight, Chris McCarroll instinctively, this was not like he wasn't being funny or like doing a thing, but totally instinctively was as he was shooting his big, big rifle was saying pew, pew, pew. (laughs) (laughs) Every time he shot, he would like make a pew noise and it was coming through on his mic. And so like it had to he had to like really train himself not to do that. I hope I didn't make that story up. No, that's absolutely true. I don't think he would be mad about that. It's anyway, it's one of my very favorite stories, and I want you to have it. I want the yes, world to I have love it. it. That was great. <laughs> you mentioned Wardrobe Village before. Could you talk about what went <sighs> on in Wardrobe, Wardrobe Village? Village. <laughs> Wardrobe Village. So, uh, at the Imperial, the dressing rooms are laid out for like an old fashioned, like Broadway musicale. So, there's two big ensemble dressing rooms, and I think. If I remember correctly, they're on the fourth and fifth floors, respectively. So I think the ladies were on the fourth floor and, and we gentlemen were on the fifth floor, which is fine. It's just a hike up there. But as I mentioned, there are a lot of fast costume changes in the show. And so our kind of routine, the only way you can do the show is you arrive at the theater, you sign in at half hour, you go upstairs and you get in your first look of the show, which for us uh, guys was look down on the ship. So it's dirt and it's rags and it's whatever we're getting ready for look down and then they say places and you go downstairs to the stage and you do look down and then you're not in your dressing room again for the rest of the night like you don't see your dressing room until the show is over over because there's no time so you have sort of a second dressing room called wardrobe village wardrobe village is in the basement and it's where every single costume lives other than the one that you put on at the very beginning of the show. So it's, a, I mean, like a small space into which all of the dudes are crammed on one side and all of the ladies are crammed on the other side. And we just do all of our changes there. I think there were two or three dressers assigned to all of the men. And what would happen is we do a scene on stage. And while the scene is happening on stage, each of us had a folding chair downstairs on which in a very deliberate uh, way the dressers would lay out our next costume so we could come in quickly strip and throw our clothes into a, a you know a bin and then uh, just slide right into our next costume so that we were ready to run back upstairs so wardrobe village is where we spent the entire night and there are like stretches of the show that we're not in you know like i don't know heartful of love right so we'd make <laughs> whatever the change is and then we'd get to chill during heartful love we had some great times in wardrobe village we men had an anthem. Uh, we wrote a wardrobe village anthem. <laughs> we, the ladies were a little more quiet and reserved. Like they had a lot more like books and like snacks than we did. Right. We mostly just messed around and, and played games. Um, but it was, I mean, it was like really fun. Some of my happiest memories are from wardrobe village. We had a really good time down there. Because there were Saturday night dance parties. I know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I did that. Was that my thing? That was me and Will. I think Will and I coordinated that. Will and I, so Will Swenson, Casey Levy, and I had all done hair together uh, first, which that was in 2009. And so we were all kind of reunited for Les Mis, which is really fun. And we started doing Saturday night dance parties during Les Mis. I think that was a Les Mis thing that Will did, which was really about, like, if you think about the Broadway schedule, Monday's the day off. Saturday night is your seventh show of the week, usually. (laughs) You're exhausted. And a two-show day of Les Mis or of hair is really, really exhausting. And so you're entering the fourth quarter of your very, very long day. Um, So Will, I'm pretty sure Will started this during hair doing a Saturday night dance party. He would go to stage management and on the like PA system for backstage, he would play a dance song and everybody would, would party. And so we started doing that. We would do it either on the PA system or down in Wardrobe Village or in Will's dressing room. I think we did like a few different locations for this. 
but it was just a way to kind of like get your energy back up to do that last act of the day, push through to the end of the weekend. Because, uh, you know, Les Mis is hard to do under the best of circumstances, but mm-hmm. twice in a day feels almost impossible. Um, so Saturday Night Dance Party was just about like, let's get our energy up, let's get going. And also there's a, a kind of tradition on Broadway called Saturday Night on Broadway, where um, – at half hour for the Saturday evening show, the stage management will usually say it's Saturday night on Broadway, which is just sort of a reminder that like you're here and you get to do this. Mm-hmm. Let's not take it for granted. Um, and so Will and I added the kicker of the Saturday night dance party <laughs> to push us through. I forgot all about that. I did my research. I did. Yeah, clearly. Dance. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Um, and then when Alfie Bogo started, you had the occasional power ballad Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Alfie Alfie is less of a party animal than, <laughs> than Will. Um, I mean, not that they played the same role. I don't even remember whether they overlapped. But Alfie, Alfie, I mean, obviously Alfie is one of the best singers in the world. But all he wants to be is Axl Rose. Like, Alfie, <laughs> Alfie is one of the best, like, classical voices in the entire world. Um, but, you know... It's the same with, I have found a lot of musical theater performances. Like, we secretly want to be rock stars. And so Alfie and I, uh, just a few times, I think we only did this a handful of times, would open the window to his dressing room, which looked out on 46th Street. Mm -hmm. And we had, uh, Hamilton was happening. It was like Hamilton's first months while we were running. And so there was always a big crowd on 46th Street. Of people not there to see our show. Like, there were people <laughs> waiting to see Hamilton. But they were also captive because they were in a line waiting to see Hamilton. And that line ran right under Alfie's dressing room window, which was on the second floor. And so, yeah, Alfie and I would bust open his window and sing, like, heart songs to them. Um, which I don't think anyone was really entertained by. But it, other than us, we had a great time doing that. That was really fun. It sounds entertaining. That yeah, it was fun. Amazing. I mean, I think the thing is, like, most of the people that were in line to see Hamilton, like, a, it was the back of our theater. So if you didn't look up, you might not have realized that mm-hmm. Les Mis was playing in this building. Right. Um, it's also not really clear from where his dressing room was that it's a part of our theater. Like, we, were, no one knew who we were. We were just <laughs> two idiots hanging out a window singing at them. Um, it was pretty fun. I mean, if you're in the Broadway area and anyone starts singing, you should pay attention. <laughs> yeah, you should just look up at least. It'll at least be entertaining for a minute. <laughs> How did you end up running the Instagram account? That's a great question. I don't know. I think we were doing some takeovers, I think was probably what was happening. I, th- I As I recall, like, you know, whoever our, uh, you know, marketing agency was, was running the Instagram page. And occasionally, and this is pretty typical in any show, is they'll ask uh, from time to time cast members to do a takeover. And they advertise it in, like, Saturday, t- Instagram takeover. <laughs> and you'll do a takeover. And I think um, I must have done a takeover or two. And I think that they found that the fans were engaging much more with that kind of like behind the scenes, like cast eye view of what was happening at Les Mis. And so they asked me to just do it, I guess. I think that must have been what happened. <laughs> uh, it is strange. I feel like that wouldn't really happen now. That's an awful lot of trust to place in some young <laughs> idiot, but they did do that. And uh, yeah, that was really fun. And then, honestly, that that made so much of that experience more fun for me. Like when, when you're in a long run, which again is like any theater actor's dream, it's all about finding little interesting projects or ways to keep mm-hmm. things kind of fun and exciting for you backstage. Like when you're on stage, you're doing your job. That that part is easy enough to maintain. But it's like the costume changes and the running around and the grabbing of props that can become a little bit monotonous. And so it's about like what, what other stuff can I keep to occupy my mind? And doing those like 15 second interviews, for instance, was really, really fun. Always really kept us engaged and having a good time. Yeah. And I meant to give the context of the 15 second interview earlier. How did those right. kind of start? <laughs> um, well, I think uh, I, I was just trying to come up with content, I think really. And like my, my wife at the time was a social media manager, actually. And I think she was like, that's something that I, I must have done an interview. And I think she said like, that's an interesting thing you did. And at the time, Instagram's videos were limited to 15 seconds. You couldn't make an Instagram video longer than 15 seconds. So it was sort of, to me, like a perfect storm of like, I can make something I and it can't be too good. Like I like, I like <laughs> it when the format prevents me from taking it too seriously. Right. So like, there's no editing. There's, and I can't make it any longer than 15 seconds. And so it's a good way to kind of feature everybody in the building. And, uh, 
yeah, everybody was into it. I don't think anybody was ever annoyed. If they were annoyed that I came to see them, they didn't tell me. Um, <laughs> and so that ended up being a really kind of a fun little outlet, I guess. And then when they blew them up to a minute, it was like over. It was done. <laughs> you have a minute long interview. interview is, it's too nothing. Much. It's too much. And Wallace uh, Smith, who started playing Angeras, he and I did them together for a while, which was really, really fun. He was another hair alum. Mm-hmm. There's a weird amount of crossover between hair and Les Mis, two yeah. shows that have nothing in common. <laughs> Um, but he, he and I did those together for a while, which is always really fun. It was a good time. Yeah. No, they were so much fun to watch. And it's just people I should go back. <laughs> I should go back and look. Because at the time, I don't know whether they still do, but like Instagram, they're all saved to my phone. They're all 15 mm-hmm. second videos on my phone because Instagram saves them to your phone. Right, yeah. They're all in the cloud or whatever. So like yeah. I, could, I should go back and watch them. I remember I watched... When Stranger Things first happened, I went back and watched Gaten's 15 second video. Yeah. Because I was like... That's weird that he's now a giant star. <laughs> like when when he became really famous, I was like, that is so strange that that kid from our show became this giant star. Uh, I mean, I'm happy for him. It's very well deserved. But like, yeah, it's been a long time since I've looked at any 15 second. I, I wonder if the Instagram page is still up. Do you it know? Is. Oh, it is? Oh, good. Oh, okay. yeah. That's what I'm going to do. Perfect. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's how I did all my research. I like oh, scrolled all the way back to the beginning. Perfect. Like- <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, you'd already been part of a Tony award-winning company with hair, as you mentioned. Um, so when Les Mis was nominated, it wasn't your first Tony season, but mm. how was that time? Was it still just as exciting? It's really fun. I mean, it's um, Tony season is exciting for the whole Broadway community, whether or not you're in a show that's even eligible. Like, it's just an exciting time that everyone is sort of talking about Broadway, which is, you know, thrilling. Les Mis had also going for it the fact that Again, I was like Ramin's arm candy to a lot of <laughs> parties, which was super fun. So like I, you know, during Hair, I wasn't nominated. I like I as an actor wasn't nominated. And so I didn't get to go to most of the stuff. I wasn't nominated for Les Mis either, but I, my boyfriend was. And so <laughs> Ramin and I went to a bunch of things together, which was really, really fun and really nice. Um, I've been in a few shows now that have been nominated, but I've, I, I guess I've only performed at two Tonys and it was Hair and Les Mis. And it's the most exciting and most exhausting day. It's the it's just the best. It's a magical thing. Luckily, both of my Tonys were at Radio City. There, like there was that year or two that they did them at the Beacon, which mm-hmm. is cool. I love the Beacon, but I didn't ever do a Tonys there. You know, to whatever sing one day more at Radio City at the Tonys, like that's bucket list stuff. And um, it was just so exciting, and to do it with so many of my friends, and it, it's it's really really fun. I don't think we won i think we lost didn't we yeah that's okay (laughs) who won do you know uh hedwig oh well sure that was a good show too yeah um that's okay (laughs) we had a good time anyway uh yeah we had a really good time it's you know it's tiring because like the way they do the tonys is you have to on tony day you get up and you do a dress rehearsal of the tonys at radio city at like 8 a.m and then you go back to your theater do a matinee and then you go back to radio city and do the tony so it's like a three show day Mm-hmm. But it's the best. I mean, like it's. I'm not complaining. It's. I would do that every day if they let me. It's a good. It's a. It's that good tired. You know. I mean, just the fact that you didn't remember if you won or not proves that it's not really yeah, about the award. Exactly. <laughs> it's not the point at all. I remember. I mean, like we won with hair. I only remember because like I have pictures of me holding the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, man, I don't know. It's not the point. Like I don't. I don't really. I don't. I couldn't tell you who else was nominated, who won, whatever. It was like a great day. It was a great mm-hmm. and exhausting day. Um, Les Mis fans are notoriously passionate about the show, um, yeah. and I kind I can include myself in that. You know, I've started a podcast about it. That's got to sure. be something. <laughs> um, so, could you talk a little bit about your experiences with the fans during the show? Yeah, there's a learning curve with that. Like, I, I, I mean, I. As I said, like I, I had seen the show when I was a kid and I knew the album like the back of my hand, but I was not, you know, it's like those Phantom of the Opera fans that call the Phantom Eric. It's like, well, okay, <laughs> just be cool. Like, we don't Eric need with to... the K. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like there's, there's a fan and then there's like a fan and yeah. I was comfortable with, with fans. Like I knew fans. I didn't realize wh- what a, like a true Les Mis fan was. So when I got the show... I read the novel, which I hadn't read, and it's mostly very good, but there are some long, very boring passages. The sewers um, section. The sewers, man. <laughs> I think somebody actually told us, they're like, you can skip the sewers. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, there's a lot of that. 
so I like I knew the book pretty well. I knew the score pretty well. I knew the show pretty well. I was in it. I was like, I'm as much a lame is person as anybody. But man, some of these folks that like really know every company and know every character, like th- there were character names. There's an awful lot of characters in Les Mis. There were character names that I didn't know while the show was running. Like there, you know, there's a lot of students. There's a lot of folks, yeah. and uh, people would say like. You know, I was there three weeks ago when this swing did the split track where, like, they had to be Bama to Bois, but also they were Jolie. And I'm like, I, I forgot about that. Why do you <laughs> – that's amazing that you remember that. Yeah, there there are those fans – I mean, it's it's obviously flattering that people care so deeply about the thing um, that you're involved with, but it's also – it does – sort of put a lot of responsibility on you, right? To sort of like honor this thing that they care so much about. We we did a um we would do talkbacks occasionally when a group would come or whatever and I was like doing talkbacks, I would sign up and so I, I was doing a talkback and it was a group of students. They were like high school or middle school students and and someone asked, why did you want to be in Les Mis? was the question. Why did you want to be in Les Mis? Like why did you pick this show to be in? Which was such a an interesting question because from the perspective of like a young actor hustling and in Broadway ensembles, I didn't choose Les Mis. It's the show I got. You know what I mean? Like right. if you're Ramin, you can choose Les Mis. But I was not in that position. It's the show I got was the honest to God answer. There is something with that show specifically that feels once you're in it, like you have been anointed with this responsibility, with this weight of everything that the show is and everything that it has been. And you are now carrying the torch for that thing. And and um, I think that's what the question was. It's like, why? What, what is it about this show that means so much to you that you would give your time to it? And it wasn't like, I have a rent bill that I have to pay. <laughs> and then, but, it, you know, it's, it's there is those fans really know their stuff in a way that I don't didn't and still don't, but was very happy to have their blessing. It seemed like most of the really hardcore Les Mis fans, you know, ours was different. We cut some stuff. We didn't have the turntable. Like there was stuff that people were hesitant about going into our production. And we tried to respect that and honor that. And I think most of them still found a lot to love in, in what we were able to do. Did you have any memorable stage door encounters? Boy, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people like dressing up to go see Les Mis, which is cool. I mean, that's great. I I I don't I I will do anything in the real world not to draw attention to myself. <laughs> like that's something that makes me very anxious in any context. But like it's uh it's always that the dressing up is something that like really interests me. That that like a fan has so much affinity for a show that they will like want the rest of the audience to know how much they can. I just think that's like amazing. A lot of tattoos. I mean, like there are a lot of lyrics in that show that lend themselves to being tattooed. Mm -hmm. I I totally understand that. Um, So a lot of tattoos, a lot of like waving flag tattoos, which are really cool. Um, So you mentioned the social media stuff, right? Which Mm -hmm. was, Interesting because you know how social media feels like it feels like you're kind of doing it in a bubble and sometimes it's easy to forget that you're actually putting it out there for the world and that like the people that comment or like or respond to it in whatever way are actual people in the world that you could see in the world. And so, you know, the goofy stuff that Ramin and I would do. The thing with the Imperial is, it's like I said, it's a labyrinth. And so you really feel sequestered from the world while you're in there, even when you press like send on a story or whatever Mm -hmm. so then to meet people who'd be like did Romy never put that mask back on like my first thought was always like how did you hear about that like that was always that was always the first thing that comes to mind I had to remind myself like no you put it on the internet you did that (laughs) you told them yeah you told everybody but like it took it always took me a second to be like oh right like I shared this we shared this this was for public consumption because it does it did feel so kind of private like what we were doing back there it just felt like goofing around with your friends but of course it wasn't you know it's just it was it was always 
that I don't know why that always surprised me, but it always did, and and it very specifically with Les Mis and not with other shows. I'm sure people were you know following everything, so they knew all the things. They knew all the things. <laughs> they knew all. They knew when an understudy was going to go on before I did. They knew. They, I mean, like they knew people. Okay, so well, Aaron has a vacation in three months, and so uh, I'm going to come back to see you know whoever do her track. Oh. She does? Where's she going? Oh, well, she's going to go to Hawaii. Oh, okay. I did. She's my friend. I'm going to go. I didn't know. That's great. It's just wild. I mean, yeah, that's such a thing, too, with the fans of, like, wanting to see everyone do all the parts. Yeah. Um, fans wanting to see other actors play the roles is is actually a really, really cool thing that you see in some shows, but I think in Les Mis, even to a higher degree, like everyone wants to see all of the Eponine covers go on. They want to see all the Valjean covers go on. They want to see, I mean, they, they want to see all of that, but also they want to see like, they want to see Chris play Fui. They want to see like <laughs> what, like that one show when I was in, uh, when I played the bishop one, one time, I have learned is sort of like a collector's item for Les Mis fans. Cause like <laughs> there are very few events that were actually one offs in Les Mis history. Cause it ran for so long. Mm-hmm. That was one, that was one performance where I was the bishop. And so people were, that were there kind of like, I was there that one time. I'm like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, stuff like that is, I think is so great because it's, it's, shows that fans are not just attached to the material but they really do make an attachment to the people doing the show which means obviously a lot to the people that are doing it mm-hmm. yeah definitely and now i need to hear this bishop story <laughs> oh man something happened i don't <laughs> i think i don't remember the particulars i think what probably happened as i recall was that there must have been a really perfect storm of sick actors <laughs> i think that must have been what happened i think what probably happened was will was sick so Adam Monley, who played the bishop, had to go on for Will. I think the other Javert cover, whoever that was, maybe John Rapson, was out. So Adam had to play Javert. We couldn't do the play. So Adam usually played the bishop. Whoever his cover was, which was John Rapson, John must have been out. John was his cover, so John went out. So I think there was no bishop cover in the building. So I don't know whose decision it was to make it me. <laughs> But somebody made the decision to make it me. I got a phone call like in the afternoon, like, so so, something is happening. And do you think you can sing the bishop? Because I'm a tenor and that is a low part. Mm -hmm. They're like, do you think you can sing it? I said, I sure would do my best. And they said, okay, can you come in a little bit early and learn the blocking and whatever? I said, sure. And I went in and uh, I learned it. And they put... I think it was probably Adam's beard on me, which I don't think actually is allowed under union standards, but we were like, show must go on. So they put the beard on me and the costume on me and it fit well enough. And I do remember that it was still when Ramin was Valjean and he couldn't look at me. <laughs> like He couldn't, he couldn't look at me without laughing. And so he, man, he had a hard time getting through that, that scene. And I did too. But I was like, I had terror to kind of propel me. He didn't. (laughs) And so he, I think, again, a consummate professional, but had a difficult time getting through that night. There were a lot of that show. One of the kind of unique things about that show, because there are so many different roles and so few actors, is that a lot of actors are also contracted to understudy like a part of someone else's track. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, John Rapson played Grantaire and Bama Tabois. But if he had to go on for Javert, somebody else would play Grantaire. But that person, for whatever reason, didn't also cover Bamatabois. I covered mm-hmm. Bamatabois. So, like, I had to skip out on a part of my track, which the swing would then pick up. Like, it would just, like, the moving pieces were so complicated. There was once that our stage manager had to be the dead body in the sewers because we didn't have another <laughs> dead body. I think it was usually Chris McCarroll, but he must have been on his Marius and his, I don't know how it happened. But, like, our assistant stage manager had to throw in some rags and be the dead body in that Valjean carries around in the sewers. Stuff like that would happen all the time. We're like, we just had to figure out how to get enough people on the stage at the same time to do the scenes that we needed to do. It was crazy. I mean, and that goes back to just what you were talking about, about that ensemble just being like no other show and just the people. Especially the swings, to be honest. Like the the swings had the hardest job of all because I think they were almost always on um, and they had to know. (laughs) So, I mean, like, you know, swings are, are always the hardest working people in any musical. 
In Les Mis, the swings have a very kind of specific job because it's not like learning a ton of dance numbers. It's not like being a swing in Newsies or something, which I'm sure is really, really hard. I know it's really, really hard. Um, but in Les Mis, it's like knowing so many fragments of tracks and being able to kind of like rebuild a brand new track that's never been done on the fly. Like knowing yeah. I'm going to do a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. And figuring out a way to get through it. It was such a feat for our dance captain to be able to build those things, for our resident director and stage management to be able to like construct these tracks that sort of make sense, for our wardrobe team to figure out how to get the right clothes onto the right people at the same time. It, it, it was an unbelievable task. Yeah. And I think that's why the people in Les Mis are always just kind of this like next caliber like perform. Like it just kind of attracts these people who you know, can really deliver those types of things, which a lot of other shows don't really require all the time. I guess it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm bringing up some PTSD. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a while. It's, I, so I left, I left Les Mis a little bit before it closed um, to go do She Loves Me. And uh, for a while, I only did revivals. And so I left Les Mis to do She Loves Me. And um, in She Loves Me, I was in the ensemble and I was covering the lead guy and one of the other guys and i was in i think i timed it it was like nine minutes of that show and it like compared to Les Mis, <laughs> like and she loves me i was i was only in the the act one finale and the act two finale those were the only numbers i was in in the whole show and my son was born while we were in rehearsals for she loves me so i was exhausted all the time so i would roll in for like an eight o'clock show i would show up at the theater at 7 15 I bought a big dog bed at the, um, what is that, like a Target on 8th Avenue near Columbus mm -hmm. Circle. Yeah. I bought a big dog bed and I put it under my table in my dressing room. And I would get to work at 7.15, lay down there and go to sleep until 9 <laughs> o'clock. And at 9, I would get up and put on a tux and comb my hair and go on stage and do a number. And then I would go back to sleep for another hour. And I remember at the time being like, if I was in Les Mis, I might die. Like, I don't know how I would do Les Mis with this level of personal exhaustion from my life right. um it just ended up being like the perfect thing at the perfect time because yeah les mis will break you if you're not <laughs> if you're not careful um and during your time in les mis you mentioned before hamilton moved it moved in next door that was a big deal everybody yeah. liked that one <laughs> and lin-manuel miranda is also a les mis super fan yeah so there seemed to be a lot of fun crossover that happened between your two shows. And yeah. you were even in a ham for ham. <laughs> I was. That was weird. That was wild, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. Lynn is like the biggest Les Mis fan in the history of the world. Um, he is such, obviously such a huge advocate for Broadway and for mm -hmm. like the entire community, which is a big deal. And I know that it was a really big deal for him to be at the theater next to Les Mis. There were a couple it was like dicey for a second i remember because we do, the theaters do share a wall mm -hmm. and i remember that there was like there was some moment in our show that was very very quiet that was very very loud at hamilton and we could hear it just a little bit coming through the it was somewhere around bring them home like the very quiet part of our show mm -hmm. and it must have been like i don't know guns and ships or something next door right and it was so i mean it was you know it was exciting being in such close proximity to the kind of <laughs> worldwide phenomenon happening <laughs> next door um and we got to know those guys a little bit because you know 46th street only has there were those two theaters and i think there was one across the street and so like we don't there's not a lot of us there's mm -hmm. a not a lot on that street. There was one coffee shop and one pizzeria. And so, like, we'd all kind of get to know each other a little bit, which is really nice. Lynn came in and did the loud hailer, which I think I probably set up. That seems right to me that I would have facilitated that because I knew Lynn a little. And uh, I went over and did the ham for ham thing, which was really fun. Um, yeah, that was really cool. It was cool. I mean, you know, to be next to be next door to the biggest thing that's ever happened to Broadway right. is is pretty, pretty neat. And then that juxtaposition of, like, Les Mis being one of the ultimate, like, Broadway yeah. shows. And then, how, like, that was just kind of, it was like a power couple on Free yeah. History. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, if you look at, like, the modern history of the musical theater, like, having those two next to each other is is, uh, is a pretty stark uh, contrast. Um, and you mentioned your son, Asher, was born right after you left Les Mis. Um, and you talked a little bit about what that was like. But in general, what's it like kind of 
juggling being a parent and being on Broadway. It's, it's <laughs> um, well, I'll say this. It's a lot easier for me than it is for a lot of my colleagues because my uh, amazing wife, who is also Asher's mother, is uh, works like a regular person with a real job. So while that and, and as a disclaimer, this is all non COVID times, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything I'm about to say applies to regular real life times. Um, in those times, the drawback is that she and I don't see each other a ton. Because our schedules would be in direct opposition if I was doing a Broadway show. But it does make it a lot easier to parent because one of us is usually available. Um, you know, there. let's say it's a regular week where I'm only doing a Wednesday matinee and then I'm doing like a five show weekend or a Sunday matinee or whatever. The only time we're really screwed for childcare is Wednesday afternoon, mm-hmm. um, which is easy enough to figure out, um, you know. Most weeks we would have other things going on and need to figure other things out. And it's it was at times challenging to get all three of us in a room together. Um, but this time here during COVID has been obviously almost uniformly bad for almost everyone. Mm-hmm. But what has been nice is like I get to say goodnight to my son every night. That's yeah. that's a sacrifice that you, you make when you're working in a show. And I get to tuck him in and say goodnight every night and I get to have dinner with – we all get to have dinner together every night. It, you know, like stuff like that you don't realize you're missing until you are. Also like, uh, you know, a one or a two-year-old doesn't care at all that you have two shows or that you have to – that you got home very late last night. They're going to get up. They're getting up. They're, <laughs> they have stuff they want to tell you about at six in the morning. And so you kind of get used to that. When I was doing She Loves Me, Allison Simmet was in the show. She was in the ensemble with me. And she had two kids who I think at the time were like teenagers already. And I said, I was like, when does this get easier? Like, when when will I not feel so terrible and tired and worried all the time? She said, never. This is just how you feel now. And someday you'll die. <laughs> so, oh, okay, good. <laughs> Um, which has turned out to be true. I mean, like it's, uh, you get used to being a little more, a little tired all the time and, um, a little worried all the time and a little joyous all the time too. Like it's, it's, it's a choice I would make again every time. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's challenging in its own way. Asher got to come see me in a show for the first time right Mm. before, uh, everything shut down. I was doing Cinderella at the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey, which is actually pretty close to our house. And so, uh, he got to come see me do the show, which was like really cool. It was fun for him to come see. And he was four and, uh, he was mostly upset that I kissed a a girl that was not his mommy. (laughs) He was like... (laughs) And he asked about it still sometimes. He's like, you're not going to kiss that girl again, are you? I said, no, don't worry. He goes, because that's not mommy. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. You should only really kiss mommy. I got it. Don't, no problem. I promise. And it was just pretend. You know, it was just pretend. And like, she's pretending too. And she's right. married to somebody else. No, I know. But I just don't think you should kiss her. He's, <laughs> yeah, know. he just did not like that. <laughs> he understood it intellectually. But there's still, still, he yeah. had an objection, which I understand. Yeah. And so he enjoyed that because I know you told Ramin once that your son did not like your singing voice. He still doesn't. <laughs> I, I did not sing much in that show, which I think made it tolerable for him. Uh, no, he does not like it when I sing. Uh, he does not like my bits. He does not care for my whole shtick. Um, my wife has a wonderful singing voice and was a, an actor when she was younger. Um, and he does tolerate it i think a little more when she sings than when i do but he'll say i'll be like singing or whatever and being goofy and he'll be like no day stop singing i don't like you're not good at singing (laughs) and i'm like what do you think bought you all these toys man what do you think all this came from it's all from right here this is it uh but no it's not his thing he doesn't get it um why anyone would like it that i sing the whole thing is a mystery to him but you know that's fine he said the other day they were studying occupations studying they're learning about occupations at his pre-k and he i guess they asked him about his parents and he said well mommy is a worker and daddy is an actor (laughs) (laughs) well that's about right (laughs) he's your toughest critic (laughs) oh for sure um so how i know one of your covid projects was actually an instagram account that you started that was the Asher and Daddy show. The Asher and um, Daddy show. Which is adorable and everyone listening should check out. But. That's my big plug. The Asher and Daddy <laughs> show. Check it out. Is there anything else that you've kind of been doing during this COVID time to kind of stay creative? I know there's a lot of like pressure on that, which I'm not about. You know, that's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that. So I made the choice 
I hope this doesn't get too deep. Feel free to get rid of it if it does. <laughs> but like I, I made the choice early on, like when everything first shut down, I was about to start rehearsals for a play that I was really excited about. And it was kind of a big deal to me because I don't, it was going to be my first like non-musical play in New York. And it was a big part and I was excited about it. And now that seems like it's probably dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sort of decided to put it all on a shelf. Like I, I decided deliberately not to cultivate my creativity at first. Um, and so I sort of said like, okay, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a husband. I'm going to be a man in the world. And that's, I mean, a man in my house. And that's going to be what I do. I'm going to get better at cooking. I'm going to get better at fixing stuff around the house. I'm going to knock off this like to-do list. And I thought that's what was going to make me the happiest. Because I've always really considered myself the kind of actor who like, like I said, I don't think of myself as a very schmackty, schmackty actor. Like I, I do it because these are the skills that I have and not because like I have a deep burning desire to tell stories. Like that's always been my narrative that I have told myself. And then like a few months in, I was not happy and mm-hmm. I didn't know why. And one day I was out driving, I was running some errands or maybe just going for a drive. And I was like, I, I haven't sung a note in four or five months not by myself not in the shower not in the car not a note and i was like i want to listen to some show tunes i guess and so i put on some show tunes included name is and i just sang in the car and i cried and i sang and i i came home and i was i said to my wife i was like i think what i do matters to me more than i gave it credit for and she said of course dummy (laughs) (laughs) like yeah uh, she didn't really say that. Some version of that. And so I, I I think this has been, it's a painful lesson to know that like I care in a way that I didn't realize about the thing that I do. Because um, it's easy. There is so much, obviously, rejection and so much disappointment in what we do. And what is sort of um, one of the intrinsically unfair things about it is that we don't control when and how we get to make our art like it's out of our hands really as artists and uh which is not something i would have uh, a term i would have used to describe myself before the pandemic so i have this thing in me that is meaningful to me to do that i am unable to do and grappling with that has been um challenging in a way that i didn't expect like i thought i would just be able to not for a while and then Mm -hmm. i would be able to put it back on but it turned out not to really work that way for me, which has been okay. Um, it helps to know that. Um, TV stuff has sort of picked back up. I had a, I'm going to be on um, the next season of Pose, so I got to work on Pose a little bit, which is great. Um, yeah, that's awesome. But it's uh, – I don't know. I, I was supposed to go do a concert in the Berkshires, and that got canceled. There's like stuff that got canceled. I have found a lot of um, – uh, it sort of scratches like my – itch to plan travel for the future so i've planned like all of these trips that may never happen i've like been fixing stuff around the house and you know there's little things here and there the asher and daddy show Mm -hmm. which my wife is is um my wife is convinced that is it's going to be our our ticket to fame and stardom (laughs) like that's gonna be we're gonna monetize it and we're gonna sell it and that's gonna be the thing um so you know the little projects here and there but like i it's actually, even though it's a little more painful, it's been really, really good for me to realize that um, it is it is meaningful to me to do the thing that I do mm-hmm. in ways other than like earning a living. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I, it, I always really thought of myself as like a craftsman. Like you know, these are these are the skills I have, and so this is the thing I do. I go to work and I ply my trade and I earn my living and I go home. But uh, this. Not being able to do it has taught me that it matters more to me than that, I think. Mm-hmm. I think in general, all of, you know, wider societies use kind of the big buzzword is realizing the power of art and theater and how much, you know, not having it really does affect you and does, you know, everyone's missing it. Yeah. I keep getting those little lessons. Yeah, it's good. We, we My wife, I, I didn't watch it, but my wife watched the uh, the prom movie adaptation yeah. the other day. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't watch the movie, but I loved the Broadway show so much. Yeah, me too. I, I thought it was, like, it was like one of those shows that was just written for me. And <laughs> I had such a great time watching it. And I was friends with a lot of people in it. Brooks and Chris Sieber are both really good friends of mine. And I was so thrilled that the show was so great. And so Farrah watched the movie. She hadn't seen the show. 
And after she finished the movie, it's like, okay, okay, but you've got to see a little bit of the show. And so I pulled up their Tony Awards performance on yeah. YouTube. And as soon as it started, I started bawling. <laughs> like, <laughs> as soon as I saw, like, people on a stage, right. like, doing the thing yeah. in front of an audience, I just, it was a completely unexpected, like, overwhelming wave for me. Um, but again, like, I take it as another lesson that what I do is important to me in a way that maybe I hadn't been really honoring or giving enough credit before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really special. Really beautiful. I think so. I, well, I don't know about beautiful, but it is. I think it is special. It's a, it's a good lesson at the very least. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I and I think that's a great note to leave it on, especially, oh, you know, we're getting closer. And as soon as we can all be back in our audiences, it's, you know, please. it's, it's going to be Oh, please, amazing. God. I would love to. Uh, yeah, nothing would make me happier. So, so today is February twenty fifth when we're recording. Yeah. March first will be the one year anniversary of the last time I was on a stage, wow. which is is gonna be. That's the longest I've ever gone. I think yeah. since my girlfriend made me join the drama club. So like, it's uh, it's strange, and I'm a little optimistic. I've now gotten both of my vaccines. Um, so like I'm excited by all the momentum happening there and, uh, I'm hopeful that it won't be too, too much longer before we can do the thing we do. Again, thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. I appreciate your time. Very well researched. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Andrew is such a cool guy. I loved listening to all of his stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please subscribe, share about it on social media, and leave a review to help spread the word. And speaking of reviews, I'm thrilled to have our first Ms. Memory to share this week from one of our listeners. This is from Tessa, who says, It's so hard to pick just one lay Ms. Memory. As a fellow superfan, I can't go a day without talking to my friends I've made through this fandom, a majority of them being from different countries. This musical also helped inspire me to study in the field of activism. One Ms. memory I'll never forget was witnessing Nick Cartel, Josh Davis, and Alison Gwynn's final tour performance. The sheer power and emotion that went into that performance was mind-blowing and goosebump-inducing. If anyone from the U.S. tour is listening to this or reading this, we love you, we miss you, and we can't wait for you to come back. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tessa. It sounds like an incredible performance to have seen. For a chance to have your own favorite Ms. Memory featured on the podcast, all you need to do is share it with me by using the review feature in your podcast platform. I'll select one to share every week. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Beyond the Barricade Podcast because I love connecting with my fellow theater fans. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm sending you a heart full of love. <laughs>